Good evening. The first experience that I ever had in Harrisonburg was a bit of a shock. I accepted the job at James Madison University without ever having been here before. In fact, the first time I came to Harrisonburg, I came in my car with all of my possessions in the back, which at that time was pretty much philosophy books and suits. <laughs> and I arrived at the Walmart on 33. This was prior to MapQuest, and so I wanted to go in to Walmart to get a map so that I could scope out the city and look at a potential place that I might be able to find an apartment. It was about dusk, and it was in the middle of the summer. Um, I got out of my car. I had on some tan linen pants. I had a black sort of silk uh, T-shirt on. I threw on the suit jacket that went with it, which had a black handkerchief. Being, <laughs> being from California, uh, it, was, it was sort of dusk. You, if you can justify wearing sunglasses and you're from California, you do. So I still had my sunglasses on, and I marched right into Walmart. <laughs> I was there looking for a map, but I saw the McDonald's, and I thought, well, I don't really want to eat at McDonald's, but I haven't had anything to eat for quite a while, my drive from Ohio. So I walked up to the uh, cashier, and the first thing that anyone in Harrisonburg said to me was, hey, man, are you a pimp? <laughs> now, it's... It's amazing how much goes through your mind in a really short period of time and how you question your life decisions. At that moment, I thought something I should not have thought, and then I said something I probably should not have said. What I thought is, and apologies, is I thought, oh God, what have I done? And then I said, I'm sorry everyone's booked tonight. A few of the lawyers at our church have advised me I probably should not have said that second thing, but uh, in any case, I did. Sometimes something can make perfect sense in one context, but not in another, right? What made sense to me where I was from and my sort of vision of the world didn't necessarily make, have the same meaning to this particular individual. And just for the record, uh, that was more sort of South American drug lord than it was pimp, but that's, that's really a side point. <laughs> Um, imagine what it's like for non-Christians. Now, I know some of you who are here are, are, are not Christians, and so that wouldn't be too hard for you. But those of you who are Christians, particularly if you were raised as a Christian, if you spent your whole life or surrounded by Christians, Christian schools, Christian education, Christian friends, it sometimes is very hard to look at what Christians do and what they believe from the angle of the outsider because much of it to them can seem very, very strange. Take, for instance, the central symbol of Christianity, which is either the cross or, if you're Catholic, the crucifix. We take these for granted if you're a Christian. Wear them as jewelry, have them on bumper stickers, T-shirts. We have them on the walls of, of homes pop items with crosses on them. But what actually is a cross? A cross is the instrument of the violent, torturous execution of criminals. And what's a crucifix? A crucifix is the brutal murder of an innocent human being, namely the leader, the founder of Christianity. From the outside, how does this make sense? How does it make sense that you would have as your central symbol... Right? As the central thing that you're focused on, the violent execution of your leader. 
It would be kind of like the central symbol of America being this. Right? Our oppression, which will tea tax from England, that was our flag. That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Or imagine the National Organization for Women having as their central symbol this. <laughs> Potential instruments of oppression used as your logo doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Or imagine the NRA, National Rifle Association, having as their central symbol this. <laughs> central symbol of their perceived oppression used as their logo wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Why does Christianity have as it, at its core a symbol of the oppression and murder of its founder and many of the early Christians who also were crucified? Why would you do that? No one else has done that. While these examples were funny, it would sort of be like, right, if Israel had a swastika on its flag, right, or early civil rights organizations having a noose or a white hood on their symbols. Very strange from the outside, but we just do it without thinking about it. Well, ultimately, Christians have this as their central symbol because it's so deep in defining our view of God and our view of the world. If there is a God, then is there reason to believe that it is the Christian God, the triune incarnate Redeemer? If there is a God, is there any reason to believe that it is the Christian God? How does it make sense to believe that God became a man or tonight? How does it make sense for a death to be the thing that you're focused upon? Particularly the violent, unjust death of an otherwise perfect person. That is our question tonight. And by far, it is the toughest of the three that we've considered. It's the most complex, primarily because if you are a Christian or if you want to understand Christianity, the notion that God is Redeemer is intimately related to everything else we believe. And so what makes it so complex is how do you disentangle the notion of redemption from everything else, because we don't have five hours or 20 hours to go through all of them. How do we do that? So in order to have a chance, what I've done is I've narrowed up the scope somewhat. And in keeping with the kind of theme of this series of God's being personal, leading to God being a composite being of three persons, which we talked about on week one, God being so personal that to identify with, to have mutual identification with the humans on earth, he became a human being. We talked about that last week. We're going to focus on God's personal relationship with humanity and how that plays out in the doctrine of redemption. Now, it's important to note that this is not all that Christians believe are part of the doctrine of redemption. Christians also understand redemption in terms of destructive causal forces that human beings have unleashed in the world and that God reverses in redemption. As well, Christianity further understands redemption in terms of God as creator having a role in bringing about cosmic justice in the world for which he's responsible. But tonight, to have a chance of talking about redemption, the core concept I'm going to focus on, its implications for God's personal relationship with us as human beings. What is the most basic concept of redemption? God in his goodness sent his son Jesus to live a perfect human life, to give himself 
a basis to be reconciled to humans whose evil actions had taken away the greatest thing he ever created and separated him from them. God in his goodness sent his son Jesus to live a perfect human life, to give himself a basis to be reconciled to humans whose evil actions had taken away the greatest thing he ever created and separated them from him. So let's break this down. The word redemption, of course, comes from the word redeem, which means to buy back or to, if you want an alliteration, regain what was lost at a cost. So there is an element of God having lost something that he then regains by paying a particular cost. So what is it that God has lost? There's a primary thing, and then there's kind of a second-order effect of that primary thing. What was lost to God first was he lost the greatest thing he ever created. God created human beings and declared them good. He created them originally flawless and intended for them to be perfect. This was the thing that this was the one thing that he declared, right? If you read the Hebrew Bible as very good, the thing that he was most proud of, the thing that he was most happy with, the thing that meant the most to him, we took that away from him. That's the first thing he lost. And then because of that, he then became estranged from the beings that did this to him, namely all of us, which meant that he lost the opportunity to achieve his ultimate goal, which was to actually have an intimate relationship with human beings. So his greatest creation, the potential for perfection in human beings was lost. And then he lost the opportunity to have his ultimate goal achieved, which was actually having a relationship with them because of what we had done. What is the cost that he ultimately, on the Christian view, pays to get this back? Well, Jesus' perfect incarnate life and death. We talked a little bit about that last week in terms of God's wanting to identify with us. This week we'll talk about it as an act of God making restitution or restoration for what we took away from him. This is a very complex doctrine, and we're going to lay out a fuller argument in favor of it. But first, before we do, I'd like to talk about two major ways that Christians misunderstand redemption and really create barriers both for themselves and for others to understanding it. Two common confusions. The first common confusion comes out any time there's a horrible act of crime that's committed that's very public. And some of the victims' families are Christians. Whenever there's a mass murder, right, and someone's family who was killed was a Christian, you will see them on TV or on the radio very soon after saying what? Saying, we forgive them. We forgive the person who did this. And it sounds very nice and it sounds very godly and it sounds very, wow, aren't they amazing? I don't know if I could do that. But it also creates a profound confusion among Christians about what it is that redemption is, what it is that forgiveness really is, because what it ultimately amounts to is believing that forgiveness is nothing more than letting go. That forgiveness is letting go, and the underlying view is that the best response to evil is always to forgive, to always just let it go. Let go of your need for some sort of restitution or some sort of retribution, let go of the pain, let go of the anger, let it, just let it all go. What's interesting about, if you think about the, all these famous cases where you see this, 
is that they are doing this before the criminal has even admitted that they did it. They haven't shown any sign that they admit they did it or that they thought it was wrong or that they're prepared to do something to make restitution for what they did. There's not even an acknowledgement that they're guilty and yet they're already being forgiven. That's not the Christian view, right? If it was, the incarnation would have been unnecessary for purposes of redemption. God could just let it all go, right? We wrong God, God lets it go, and we're good. Christianity holds that true forgiveness is not just the, emotionally, the harmed party letting go emotionally. That's a piece, but that's not the only piece, and it's not the first piece, One reason, we'll talk about this later, one reason it's so hard to let go of some things that have been done to you is because you're trying to let go of something when the person actually doesn't deserve forgiveness. And in some ways, it's not even appropriate to forgive them, although we'll talk more about that at the end, how that that plays out exactly. But at core, the Christian view of forgiveness is not just letting go. It's a bigger thing than that. It is relational reconciliation. The real Christian view of forgiveness is not just that you let go of the bad thing, sweep it under the rug or pretend it never happened. It's that you are ultimately reconciled to that person, which involves a number of things, including letting go, but also a change in the person who wronged you and some sort of restoration of what was taken from you. True forgiveness was never meant to be just letting go. It's ultimately reconciliation. Despite the stereotype, the traditional Christian view is that if there is no change, there is no restoration, there's no forgiveness. If God can't forgive us without that, neither can we forgive others without it. That's the first uh, confusion on kind of the more liberal side. There's also a confusion about redemption on the more conservative side. But before I get to it, I have a bit of a confession to make to Aubrey, and I need to kind of do this in public. This has been a really tough uh, lecture for me to prepare, and I, I've been really stressed in school. You know, my students are just driving me nuts, and, uh, and it's just, you know, it's really, it's really been stressful, and I needed a release. So I stole your car, and I did kind of a wild joy ride, and I, I trashed it. Right? I mean, I was doing, you know, donuts. I was doing Dukes of Hazard jumps. I figured I'm in the South. Let's give it a shot, right? I ended up, it ended up flying over a cliff. I'm okay, but it's totaled. And it gets a little bit worse because I I talked to your insurance company and there's a weird exception in your policy. It's not covered. That's okay after (laughs) you. So... And Darcy and I, with, with a child on the way, we can't buy a new car. But I've got a great lawyer in my small group. And he's already talked to the judge and the DA, and we've already figured something out. Tonight, one of your children be, will be arrested. They'll serve five years in prison, three years of good behavior, and I will go free. So we're good, right? We laugh, and some of you kind of didn't want to laugh because you thought, wait a minute, should I be laughing at this? (laughs) Unfortunately, that's what many people think redemption is. Many people think that basically redemption is somebody's got to get a weapon, and so if it's not us, I guess it's got to be Jesus. 
The Christian view, or the the view that this expresses, is that basically the primary purpose of redemption is for God to punish Jesus to satisfy the need for somebody to be punished. That ultimately God, at his core, just has a need that someone's got to be punished, and if he wants to avoid punishing us, he'll pick, right, Jesus. Now, if that view doesn't, if my analogy with Aubrey didn't make sense to you, if it struck like this doesn't make sense, there's a reason why. It's because the view doesn't make sense. But unfortunately, we often fall into the trap of presenting this as if it was the Christian view. The primary problem that's being solved in redemption is not just that God has an indiscriminate need to punish somebody out of anger. There is anger, and we'll talk about it in a second. It's ultimately that he needs to have restored back to him what was lost. The primary thing that needs to happen in redemption is restoration of what God lost, not just punishing people. The ideal solution, right, ultimately to me stealing Aubrey's car is in some sense that he actually has a car restored back to him. The best solution involves that as a piece. And ultimately, the ideal solution to our evil or to our taking something from God, perfect humanity, is that he actually receives that. Now, what happens is... If he does not get it, then the only option is punishment. If he does not receive back what he is owed, then the only option is that he has to be permanently separated from the one who's done this to him, right? And ultimately, that's how, at least one way to understand punishment in the ultimate sense in Christianity, permanent separation from God, amongst, amongst other things. If God does not receive back what's restored to him, he justifiably is wrathful against us and would justifiably punish us. But the primary purpose in redemption is not to deal with the wrath per se. It's to restore back what God lost. It's to deal with the basis for the wrath, right? It's, it's focused on, too many Christians are focused on the fruit rather than the root of the problem. If these are not the primary two ways to understand redemption, what is? I want to lay out what I think is ultimately the basis for the concept of redemption, a philosophical argument that God is redeemer. To start the argument, think for a minute about if, if you are omniscient, omnipotent, morally perfect personal being who created the world, what ultimately is most valuable to you? A number of us might help create some of these works of art that are uh, around us in, in, in the church, and there are a lot of people in the church who are artists. If you're an artist, if you're a creator of something, you have lots of creations. You're probably not equally attached to all of them. The one that you're going to be most attached to is presumably the one that you somehow most identify with or that most expresses or that you think has the potential to most express who you are or what you stand for. What is that in God's case? In God's case, it's us. And it's our potential, right, as persons to be like him perfect the most valuable thing to god as a morally perfect and as a personal creator is his intention that we also be perfect that we also be expressors in a christian view of the image of god and that we do so perfectly and goodly and so when we commit evil It's not just that we did something wrong. It's not just that there's some moral fact of you did a wrong thing to God and there's this sort of moral fact in our relationship. It's that we robbed him of the thing that he values the most. 
It's not just a random thing. It's not just a small thing. It's the thing that means the most to him. Human evil has taken away from God his most valuable possession, which means the thing that he created and intended from the start, which were good human beings. Cannot be underemphasized this. Sometimes it's, we'll get to this in a minute. Sometimes people think of uh, human evil as not particularly serious. So they understand what's the big deal to God? Well, the big deal is the thing that he created that he values the most, we destroyed. It's not good to ignore problems that emerge in a relationship. Within a lot of theistic traditions, including Christianity, the relationship between God and humanity is often described as the relationship between a man pursuing a woman romantically. Imagine that you had a a friend who was a man who was pursuing a woman, and the woman he was pursuing um, trashed his vintage, perfectly restored from scratch Harley Davidson motorcycle. Right? That this guy, his pride and joy was that he found in a junkyard a vintage Harley Davidson. He restored it up from, the, up from the bottom, perfect condition, and this woman destroys it. And then he does nothing. Presumably, you would tell him there's something wrong here. Right? You can't ignore this. There has to be some response. Now, that's not to say that there's not a way to solve this problem in your relationship with her. That's not to say that um, it can't be dealt with, but you can't just ignore it. Something has to be done. God is morally perfect, can't just ignore this problem, right? Something has to be done about it. So he has essentially two options, just like your friend would have. Either they deal with the problem in the relationship or they terminate it. That it would not be good to remain in a relationship that had such significant problems. And so that's God's situation with us. God's got only two options. He either addresses the problems, which means that his loss is restored and we change from the condition that we're in, or he ultimately has to terminate his relationship and be permanently separated from us. To understand the Christian view, you've got to understand that on the Christian view, redemption was not an option for God. It was necessary for God. In other words, God's only way to avoid permanent separation from us was redemption. There was no third possibility of no redemption but still have a relationship with humanity, the only way that a good God could have maintained or ended up with a relationship with us was to deal with the problem, and the problem requires restoration and transformation in us. Now, here's the problem. Oh, we haven't got to the problem yet. Uh, God has strong reason to want to make reconciliation possible. God as a morally perfect being does in fact love us as other persons, wants to be restored to us, wants to make it work out. God's desire is to do that. But the problem is, we are not in a position to restore his loss. There is nothing we can do to undo what we have done. Right? If what he lost was the potential to have perfect human beings, that ship has already sailed for us, and no matter how hard we try now, it's not coming back. No amount of being good now, no amount of trying now, no amount of anything now is sufficient. And so anything that we would offer to God at this point would be like me just giving Aubrey back a trashed car and say, there you go, that doesn't restore anything. That's the, that's the problem. We're just giving back to him the thing that, that uh, is the source of the problem in the first place. We are not in a position to restore what was lost. 
And so even if we were to affect some sort of change in our life, it still wouldn't have addressed the core problem. Both things must be addressed. Now, in principle, Jesus can offer something that would be restoration for us. So within the Trinity, right, typically, if you remember back to week one, there's the notion that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have some differential of roles. And it's typically understood within Christianity that the Father generally is the one who kind of has the role of uh, sort of serving as the sort of final arbiter of the relationship with those outside. And so Jesus, in principle, could, since he is not a human prior to the incarnation, and hence doesn't owe the Father a perfect life as a human, since he's not one, he could choose to take on the role of a human being, live a perfect life, and then upon his death, right, have offered that back to the Father to give to him what it is that he lost. God would actually receive the thing that was taken from him. He would receive perfect humanity. And in fact, technically speaking, he actually gets something better because what God actually lost was not perfect humanity. He lost the potential for perfect humanity. So he actually gets more than what he lost, which gives it a reasonable basis for him to say, this could be restoring what was taken from me. So if we, in response to God's uh, sending Jesus to make restoration on our behalf, if we were to renounce the evil ways that we've engaged in and then rely upon Jesus' life and death as our way to restore God's loss, that new view of life would be a change for us, right? So that potentially, our response to what Jesus does could then bring about or begin the process of bringing about the second piece of what God needs, which is a change within us. So if you put all these pieces together that we've robbed God of the thing that was most valuable to him, which would be perfect humanity, that a good being could not possibly just ignore this problem in the relationship. And so then he has the option of either being permanently separated from us or deal with the restoration. And then he wants there to be restoration, but that we're in no position to make it. The only option is that someone else has to make the restoration for us. And the only one who could do that would be for God to essentially do it himself. So if he does that, Jesus comes, lives, and dies a perfect human life. God then receives what he had intended to have all along. Restoration is made. If we then respond by adopting a new view of the world that at its core is renouncing the evil that we've done and depending upon Jesus' actions to make restoration for us, then in principle, God would have both sides of what he needs to be restored. So it would follow that God has strong reason to do this. His desire to be restored to us would then demand that he send Jesus to make restoration for us. God has strong reason to provide himself with a perfect human life, God incarnate Jesus, and thereby create a basis for reconciliation with humans. If they reject their evil ways and rely on the offer of Jesus, help to restore God's loss on their behalf. The longest argument we've looked at, the deepest and sort of most complex of Christian doctrines, but at core what it comes down to is that what God values most we took. He cannot ignore that. He cannot sweep that under the rug. Either it is restored to him or he has separated it from us forever. We can't restore it. He wants to be restored. And so the only option is that he restores it for us. Now, this might raise some objections. 
In fact, it raises lots of potential objections. I want to take a look at two common objections to redemption from the outside, one that's from a more kind of liberal side and one that's from a little bit more conservative side. The first objection is the person who says, wait a minute, why do I need to be redeemed? Why is all this necessary? I'm basically still a good person. I don't need to be redeemed. Funny thing about the phrase, but I'm still a good person. Nobody ever says that after they do something good. Have you ever noticed that? It's kind of like, you meant well. You don't say that to someone when they actually did something well. It's like if my wife makes an amazing dinner that's just like the greatest dinner she's ever made, I wouldn't say, you meant well. <laughs> or I should get like this great Christmas present that I'm really excited about. And I go, well, your heart was in it. Typically, if someone says I'm a good person, what they mean is I'm pretty much a total screw up. Then nonetheless, there is a serious objection under this. And the serious objection is the person who says to you, uh, a non-believer might say, look, I love my wife. I've never even thought about cheating on my wife. I'm devoted to my children. I work incredibly hard at my job, but I still spend lots of time with my wife and family. I'm involved in the community, right? I give to charity. I've never committed any huge moral uh, evils of, you know, murder or rape or theft, Right? I've never intentionally tried to do anything against God. I've never intentionally tried to take anything from Him. Why do I need to be redeemed? What's, what's the problem? What's so bad? Whatever I've done can't possibly be that big of a deal to God. Some humans, this is true, right? There are some people who haven't done anything really, really in that super serious category. Or they didn't do anything intentionally designed to rob God or steal from God. Have they really wronged him in a major way? Now at this point, some Christians, I think, take the wrong task. Some Christians will then say to the person, No, you really are a terrible terrible person. Let me show you why you're a terrible person. And then you try to find some way about, well, you, you maybe thought about killing somebody or you, you, you got mad at someone and that was the same thing. And, and, and yes, there is, um, it is the case that we all probably do underemphasize how evil we are and that we do miss a lot of the evil things that we've done. But this really, that's really not the point. The point is not, the point of Christianity and the point of redemption is not that we are all as bad as we possibly could be. We are not all equally bad. There are some humans who have lived, lived lives that are not all that bad, depending on what you mean by that bad. But that's not the point. The point is, what God created, what God intended was perfection, and you are not that. And I might say, well, isn't that a high standard? Any of you guys collect things? Right? Vintage LPs. Right? Rare books, artwork, stamps, coins, vintage handguns. In any of these collections, what is the number one determiner of value? Condition. Is it in the condition that it was created as? Is it in the condition it was intended to be? If it is, it's basically almost, if it's at all rare, it's basically priceless in that realm. And if there's even one tiny flaw, the value plummets. Right? Imagine if uh, you have a vi- beautiful vintage handgun that's the prize of your 
gun collection. Right? It's the thing that you notice when you walk into your room where it's displayed. That's the thing you notice. The thing you show people. Right? You put on white gloves to take it out of the case. Right? I mean, it's, just, it's the absolute perfect thing. Suppose for whatever reason, in a weak moment, you loan it to me. I would not do this, by the way, but just for example, I lo- you loan it to me and I give it back to you with a scratch on one side. And you say, what have you done? And I say, well, it's just a scratch. I didn't break the stock off, right? I didn't saw the end off. I didn't smash it on the ground. If you turned it on the other way, you don't even notice the scratch. <laughs> From this side, it looks perfect. It still works. You say, yeah, I'm thinking about trying it out right now. (laughs) The point of your anger, which is entirely justified, isn't that I destroyed it. It's that, right, it was flawless and its primary value was connected to that. I took that away. It's not that it's totally unusable. The point of Christianity is not to say we need to be redeemed because we are completely, utterly useless and we don't do anything of value at all. We barely even function as humans. It's that what we were created to do, what we were created to be, that we are definitely not. We were created one way and ended up another way. Even the person who's, quote, not that bad, if we accept that, they're still imperfect and condition matters. If you are a collector, the thing that matters most to you is condition. You searched forever to find the one copy of that book that was in that condition. If you happen to own a flawless diamond, you spent a ton to get the flawless diamond. And in fact, the difference between a flawless diamond and the sort of VVS diamond is not even noticeable unless you have a microscope. So literally, you are paying for something you cannot even see with the naked eye. But yet, if you bought a flawless diamond and someone scratches it, even microscopically, they have robbed you of something of incredible value. And to just say that you can't notice it if you don't have a microscope doesn't take away from the fact that they robbed you of something of profound value. The fact that they say, well, it's, you know, I didn't smash it. It can still cut glass, right? It can still right, be used for a laser. Well, yeah, but that's not what they bought it for. They bought it to be a flawless diamond. God intended us to be the image of God, to be perfect as he was perfect, and that we are not. Merely functioning as a human and not being worse are no substitute for being flawless as we were created to be. So the Christian doctrine of redemption doesn't in and of itself imply that we are as awful as we could be. What it implies is what is absolutely undeniably true of all of us, which is we are absolutely not perfect, and that is what we were intended to be. And that's enough for there to be a huge problem. We ruined the number one thing in God's collection. Second objection comes from a kind of more conservative side, and by conservative I would mean kind of other theistic religions, might say to Christians... How does Jesus make up for your mistake? How does Jesus make up for your mistake? Imagine that I have a friend whose marriage has been suffering. Um, His wife feels that uh, the the romance is gone, right? He hasn't been kind of fulfilling his his obligations to to romance his woman. And they're really, things are going rough. And I, I say to my friend, I say, you know what? I know exactly what you guys need. 
Um, and it's ironic because today in the mail, I just got these two tickets to this just amazing event in Washington, D.C. It's this great black tie ball. There's going to be a five-course you know, five meal from just this, this. They're flying in a French chef to cook it. Right? It's going to be, there's going to be dancing. There's going to be amazing entertainment. There's even two nights in a, you know, a, a five-star resort. There's going to be like a spa massage and a great breakfast buffet the next day. Um, and, I, you know, there's a perfect tuxedo to wear. There's a great dress she should wear. Why don't I take her? <laughs> Now, think about it, that doesn't solve my friend's problem, right? Because, in fact, now he has another problem, right? <laughs> that doesn't solve his problem with her. And so someone might say to Christians, wait a minute, how does what Jesus do, did make up for you? The objection, the good action that I do can't solve your relationship problem with someone else. Right? If I take his wife on the romantic vacation, that doesn't solve his problem. This is a, perhaps the most serious objection to, from the outside to the Christian doctrine of redemption is basically, how does Jesus' action solve our relationship problem? Well, we've got to be precise about what aspect of the problem we're talking about when Christians talk about redemption. God's primary loss, the core of the problem, is that he lost the potential for a perfect human being. That is a, something that he created that's not just something that's about his relationship with me. That's something that he has that exists beyond our relationship. It's kind of like if I steal Aubrey's car, his problem now isn't just with me. His problem is also that he doesn't have a car. That problem doesn't exist for him just in the context of his relationship with me. It, the problem comes up anytime he needs to drive somewhere or his wife needs to drive somewhere. Right? The problem transcends just me. And because of that, there's the potential that a third-party action can make a difference. Jesus' perfect life and death would restore what God lost. It would give, it would be like someone giving Aubrey a new car. Now that in and of itself doesn't completely solve our relationship issue, but at least removes that one barrier. In addition... What people often miss when they make this objection is, first of all, they sort of ignore the fact that what God actually lost, God actually gets back. In fact, he gets better because instead of just getting the potential, he gets actually the potential fulfilled. But there's also a second part to the Christian doctrine, right? Because it's not, Christianity does not claim Jesus dies, make restorations, and all humans are forgiven, and all humans now have a relationship with God. There's a second piece, right? My friend, right, I can... I can give my friend the two tickets. I can give my friend my tuxedo. I can give my friend the money. I probably wouldn't, but okay. I could. In principle, I could. I could give him the money to buy his wife a dress. I can help him. I actually could help him there. But that's not enough. He also has to use it. He has to actually use it and apply it into the relationship with his wife. This is what Christians mean when they talk about how we're supposed to respond to the offer. We're supposed to repent and believe. The other part, the part that does have to come from me, it does. It comes from my renouncing evil and my then relying on Jesus' act of restoration, what Christians talk about as repent and believe. 
Now, God obviously is satisfied with actually a fairly modest act on our part, right? Ultimately, the adopting of a new view um, and then the relying upon Jesus' act of restoration for us. And as the wronged party, he does have some rights to determine what he is prepared to accept as an acceptable act of restoration. The core of the Christian claim, though, is that there are limits as to how much he could accept. In other words, he couldn't just unilaterally forgive us without receiving something as a restoration. But it is within his rights to accept that um, Jesus' life and death is suitable as restoration. Jesus offers us the thing to be restored to God, but then we apply it to our relationship with God through, on the Christian view, turning away from evil and trusting that that restoration is suitable. Repenting and believing. So where can this impact our lives? Well, I want to circle back to what one of the first things that I mentioned, which is the notion of forgiveness as letting go. Part of what we get, and Christians often miss this in the doctrine of redemption, is we don't just get the potential to be restored to God, but we also get the potential to be reconciled to other human beings. That the, the notion of forgive as you've been forgiven, it's, that's more than just you should be open to forgiving people as I was with you. There's, there's also the notion that Jesus' death actually helps that process. Why? As we mentioned at the beginning, letting go, that kind of emotionally letting go of anger and of, of, of desire for retribution with someone else, that was never meant to be done independently of reconciliation. We were never meant to be in a situation with people where if they've wronged us, that we just decide to just let it all go and they don't do anything. There's no restoration. There's no dealing with the problem. The reason it's so hard to do that is because you weren't ever meant to do that. Now, you might say, well, but wait a minute. Sometimes we are in situations where there really isn't the possibility of restoration. There are some evils where, I mean, if someone murders your family, there's not a whole... I mean, what do they do? Create you a new family? Right? I mean, there are some things where there's, it's not clear what they would do. It's not like a simple, I stole your car, I restore your car. Right? Or it's not a simple thing between husband and wife. It's like, okay, I, I've done this wrong. I'm going to do better in the future on this thing. Or, you know, here's what I'm going to do is... Some things aren't like that. Or the person may have died. What do you do in that case? Here's where Jesus' restoration has a second effect that helps here. Sometimes it is true that in our brokenness with other humans, it's so severe that we are in no position to be reconciled to the other person, either because they're unwilling or they're gone or it's just so bad that we just don't even know what to do. In those cases... Yes, it is psychologically healthy to find some way to let go of what happened. But how do you do that without restoration? Well, Jesus' life and death offers us something greater than what we lost. In other words, in Jesus restoring to God what God lost, he also then offers us the chance to have a relationship with God, which is greater than whatever someone else has taken from us. In other words, that there's a kind of lateral effect of we get from God something greater than what anyone else could ever take from us, which is the chance to know God again. And that potentially 
can help us to have the wholeness to be restored to that person or at least to be able to let it go. That we can let it go because, yes, maybe that peace will never get back, but God gives us a bigger peace to fill the hole. Now, obviously, there's a lot of issues that get involved with this. Um, This isn't a full account of how this would play out, but I think it's worth just noting that redemption isn't just about us and God. It also gives us help for us and each other. Of course, the biggest implication of a Redeemer God is our relationship with God. All of us undeniably have done evil and have robbed God of a perfect creation and the hope of our lives being perfectly good as he intended them to be. Undeniably, we've all done that. Even if you think you're a decent person, you don't think you're perfect, and so clearly you've at least done this. There's nothing we can do that will ever put that back. We can't go back in time and become perfect. As a good being, God can't ignore this problem. Something has to be done about it. And so here is Christianity's challenge to every other theistic religion. What's your solution? How are you reconciled to God? In many ways, most other theistic religions are basically ambiguous on this point, or they hold essentially that God sweeps it under the rug, either kind of unilaterally forgives us, or in effect holds that if we do enough good things, God will treat that as if it was close enough, and then he essentially sweeps it under the rug. God never gets back what he has lost in any of the other theistic religions, and hence, in effect, ignores the problem. Christianity says a perfect God could not do that. He has to deal with it. Jesus' life and death on the Christian view restores to God the core of what he lost and leaves us with a choice. Do we repent and believe? Do we renounce evil and rely on Jesus' effort at restoration? Or do we end up separated from him forever? For all the reasons that I've laid out today and in the prior two weeks, I think there is good reason for all of us to believe that God is the triune incarnate redeemer. Too often Christians have given up and thought that maybe, yeah, we can give an argument that God exists, or maybe we can give an argument that there's objective morality, but we can't give an argument that God's triune, or we can't give an argument that God is incarnate, or we can't give an argument that God is redeemer. I hope that this series has challenged you to think that maybe there is more that we can give as reasons. That we don't have to accept things as an act of blind faith, that we can have reasons to believe in all of these things. Is he your triune incarnate redeemer? If you're not a Christian, I hope you will think about this um, further. And if you are a Christian, I hope you'll think about, do you know why? And whether this series, I'm sure, will not have answered all of anyone's questions, but hopefully will at least give you the hope that they can be answered. And I would encourage you, don't stop asking until you find the answers. It's been my pleasure to give these talks. I appreciate all the people that have come out. Thank you very much. And now we'll turn to questions.